Hi, I'm Scott O'Grady, and I want to thank you all for inviting me uh, to come here for the opening of your wonderful church here at Rock Point. I want to thank a lot of my friends that are here, Ron Holden, his family, and a lot of familiar faces and friends I see in the audience for allowing me to come and give a testimony. Um, I'm a former F-16 fighter pilot who happened to have a wartime experience where I was shot down and spent six days surviving in a war zone. And I've been asked to come here to talk to you about that experience that I had and uh, what happened to me during that time with my relationship with God. Today, we're here to celebrate your opening of your church and uh, rejoice in what a wonderful experience that is. But beyond uh, having the joyous times in our lives, we have also all faced struggles. Have any of you here, have, ever, have you ever had a bad day? <laughs> now, we've all faced difficulties in life, so the difficulty that I want to share with you might be something you've never experienced, but you can relate to it. And I want to share with you uh, an experience where I had a bad day that turned into six days of fighting for my life. And I want to share with you what I went through mentally and emotionally, physically and spiritually during this time. And let me bring you into my experience and also share with you that when death came to knock on my door more than once, I had inspiration. And I found that through my relationship with God and the love I have for my Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love I have for my family, and then the love I have for my country. All of those things inspired me to live through this experience where when I was flying an F-16 over war-torn Bosnia, unexpectedly a Soviet Secretary missile impacts my airplane. My airplane now explodes around me. I'm being burned before I can even eject out of the aircraft. I ended up ejecting at over five miles above the earth at a quivering airspeed around 500 miles per hour. I had a parachute descent that lasted up to nearly a half an hour before I even hit the ground. And the enemy forces are ready, there, ready to capture me immediately. I'm now hunted down in a country where I don't even have the right to live, where for six days I'm desperately trying to talk to somebody on the radio. Finally, friendly forces hear my radio call. NATO aircraft and the United States Marine Corps came down in their helicopters. They picked me up after flying out or being shot out by surface-air missiles, anti-aircraft artillery, and small arms fire. Now, those six days ended up being the most positive six days I've ever had in my life. And I don't want to recommend a near-death experience to any of you. But the reason why it was a really positive experience for me was because of my faith. I was praying out there 24 hours a day. And I was able to look with inside myself like never before in my entire life. Because my weaknesses and my strengths were completely exposed to me and out on the table. But I didn't have revelations there. I didn't have new lessons being learned. I had all the old lessons that I was taught and grew up with, with my family and my church and even at school being refortified to me. That is for me, even in the face of death, the greatest source of peace, comfort, love, and strength that I could ever find in this life comes from my relationship I have with God. And that relationship comes because of Jesus Christ. And by His grace alone am I saved. And I found out, though, that it wasn't so much to be a person of faith when I was there so much as it was to maintain trust. Now, if you had to come up to me, though, while I'm lying underneath the branch of the trees, and the enemy's walking by me, sometimes just a few feet away, carrying their weapons, ready to their teeth, they kill me or catch me. And at that point, if you just snuck up to my hiding spot with a contract in your hand saying, Scott, let's make a deal. The deal will be that when you sign this contract, you give up all your worldly possessions. Anything that's material in your life vanishes now. 
but we return you back to the most valuable thing that you have here in your life, that being your family. I want you to know, for me to be able to come back to see my mother and my father and sister and brother again, I would have signed that contract in a split second. Why? Why? Because my family means more to me than anything that's material in this entire world. They were the sole reason why I had a will to survive out there, a reason to even come home. But I'm 80 miles now into hostile territory. There are no friendlies there, and there are three armies fighting around me. At that point, you would have thought I would have felt very lonely, secluded and isolated from the rest of the world. But I wasn't. I wasn't lonely because I had a team there surrounding me and supporting me. And the team that inspired me went beyond the military team I'm a part of. Because the team that meant the most to me in my heart was actually a team right back here in the United States of America. See, I knew that all of you here in the United States value human life. I knew that all of you here were not going to forget about me and that you were going to make sure I came home. I want you to know that I never doubted that. Never doubted that you were there for me. And I don't know how I can ever tell you in words, even to this very day, as to how much that meant to me. Knowing that while I was wearing our country's uniform, trying to survive in a war zone, that I had the inspiration and the support of the American people back home. That meant the world to me. And whether you knew it or not, at that point in time, all of you here were part of the inspiration that helped me survive this ordeal. And I want to thank you for that. Now, the day that I went in prior to flying this 47th mission over Bosnia, I hadn't flown for 10 days. I was on a temporary assignment. So when I came back to where I'm permanently assigned as an F-16 fighter pilot, you would think that my primary job and my first thing to do would be to jump in an airplane and go fly. But actually, as fighter pilots in our squadrons, we all have to be supervisors or run different functional shops, and we have additional duties. I was assigned to be the unit life support officer, so I'm sitting down at my desk going through all my paperwork when a good friend of mine who's our scheduler squadron comes up to me, and he said to me, Scott, tomorrow on the 2nd of June, on the schedule, I see that there's a mission here to fly over Bosnia. I'm writing your name down. I want you to fly that mission. But it reminded me that this was going to be the last combat mission that we flew for a month and a half. But he told me, because I'm still flying that one mission in the month of June, that would still qualify me for the hostile fire pay bonus for that month. Because <laughs> whether you flew one day of the month or 30 days, as long as you flew over that combat zone just for even one minute, you'd receive a bonus of $150 for that month. <laughs> I want you to know it wasn't worth that $150. And we laughed and we joked about the fact that we ever got that bonus. And I'll tell you why we laughed about it. Because we never did it for the money. I don't know if anybody who joins the military thinks that they're going to get rich. No, you volunteer to serve our country because you believe in defending our way of life and our freedom here as Americans. And that's the only reason why you put on that uniform. Now, when I went into work on the 2nd of June, met up with Captain Bob Wright. And uh, he and I are both equally qualified to lead a mission into combat. But you never send one airplane into hostile territory. You always have a minimum of two aircraft to have a team, an element to support each other. But only one person can lead at a time. And as the assigned leader, Wilbur had to make the decisions, run the tactics, keep tabs on the weather, and talk on the radios. I was there solely to be his wingman, fly a good formation off of his aircraft, and now back up his decisions. Our mission was to enforce a no-fly zone over Bosnia. There was an atrocious civil war occurring there at the time between three major factions, Croats, Muslims, and Serbs in that region were embroiled in fighting, where we hadn't seen atrocities 
such as the like since Hitler had occurred uh, with uh, World War II. I mean, in Bosnia, we started to see in Europe genocide. We started to see death squads going into villages to round up men and young boys to execute them in cold blood. Or anyone that would be caught in a house that was burning down would be burned alive in the house. Women were raped there for psychological warfare from their enemies. Young children or elderly people, when they would try to cross the street to get to a water source, would be shot at by snipers. A lot of people were maimed or even killed in that region. And so we saw a lot of devastation occurring with the civilian populace, and the international community wanted to promote peace there. And one of the ways we're going to de-escalate the warfare there is by the U.N. coming out with a resolution that we would enforce a no-fly zone over the skies of Bosnia, which would prevent any of the warring factions from flying their aircraft overhead so they couldn't use air superiority to their advantage and just drop bombs on people on the ground. Now, as part of the NATO alliance, we came in to police that U.N. resolution. But I want you to envision a few things right now that are very important. First of all, we were not there as a warring faction at that time. We're solely on a peacekeeping effort, but yet we're still in a hostile environment. What does that mean? It means that all the integrated air defense systems of Yugoslavia are still intact. All their radar sites can look up and watch our flight paths day and night. They know exactly where we're flying 24 hours a day. All their communications posts can listen in on our frequencies to where they knew everything there was to know about our operations. There were no secrets out there. But then even more threatening to us as pilots, uh, all the surface-to-air missile sites and large gun emplacements in country would still be actively there trying to shoot at us. And the rules of engagement at that time when we were flying were that if a ground site fired at us and attacked us, we could not retaliate immediately. All we could do is defend ourselves and vacate the area. Well, that was like walking through a minefield out there on our peacekeeping effort trying not to be shot at. And Bosnia is not a very big country. If you look at the map, it took us maybe two hours to randomly patrol the entire area. But on this one mission, Wilbur and I are not asked just to randomly patrol the entire area of Bosnia. We're asked to monitor the northwest corner. To do that, we fly in a combat air patrol. That's an oval racetrack pattern that you fly to monitor a sector of airspace. We knew about missile sites that would be to the west of us, to the north of us, and northeast of us from our intel brief. What we didn't know is that because we were flying in this pattern, predictably for over a year's period of time, Enemy forces had seen this as an advantage to be able to bring in a mobile radar guided missile site, place it directly below where we're flying all the time, camouflage their site to set up a trap to see if they can shoot one of us down. Guess what? I get caught in their trap. And unfortunately, when we're flying, um, and we didn't know that the missile site was below us. Wilbur and I are now in our tactical formation. We call it tactical line of breast. We're parallel to each other, about two miles apart with an altitude stack. And we're heading in our westbound direction in our combat air patrol. And we're looking out for enemy aircraft with an onboard radar and our visual lookout. And on the radio, immediately I heard Wilbur come out and say, Basher 5-1, threat east. I looked inside my threat warning system, inside the cockpit, where I didn't see a warning indication. So I told him that I didn't have a threat looking at me. Wilbur's threat warning goes away within just seconds. But not only are we talking to each other on the radio, we're on an open radio frequency. And an airborne command post, here's our threat call. It's similar to an AWACS aircraft, but not as sophisticated. It radios up to the U-2 reconnaissance airplane over Bosnia at the time and other intelligence gathering networks to see, was there a missile site below us that we didn't know about previously? Well, if it were to come back that something was detected there, we would have vacated the area. But instead, we were told we were in the clear, or so we thought. Now, as we come up now to the Croatian border, 
We can't cross that for political reasons. We turn in our eastbound leg. And after flying down track for a few minutes, I receive a warning inside my airplane. I look outside to see if we're being shot at. I never saw the missile. On the radio, I tell Wilbur, Basher 5230s. He tells me that he doesn't have a threat warning indication. Now, from the time I get the warning to where the missile impacts is about six seconds. I'm shortly underneath the parachute right after that. Never had enough time to dodge the missile like we were trained to do or put out a decoy. All I remember is this red flash going off the right side of my aircraft, my thumb trying to put out decoys, and then bam, the missile impacts. Now, it wasn't until I'm in the hospital where I'm able to talk to Wilbur on the phone for the very first time to debrief to ask him about the missile engagement. I told him I never saw that missile. He said, well, two were actually shot, and they came up from underneath us. He said the first one went right in between our airplanes. The second one came up, hit dab smack in the belly of your aircraft. I saw the airplane explode, break up into pieces. The nose section was on fire and it fell off into the clouds. He said, I never saw you eject. I never saw a parachute. And I thought you were dead. You know what I told him? I said, wow, that must have been really cool to watch. <laughs> you know, who here has seen something like that in real life? This isn't the movies. Then I thought, wait a minute, we're laughing about something that's not very funny. I almost died at that moment. And the only thing I can conclude about laughing about a near-death experience is that in life, we'll have good times and we'll have bad times. But no matter where you are on that roller coaster ride, I think it's important to maintain your sense of humor about things. I am absolutely convinced that God has a sense of humor. Personally, I think he's laughing at me daily. But when that cockpit started to break apart in front of me, and I'm immediately engulfed in flames now, I'm reaching for the ejection handle as fast as humanly possible. But I thought my life was over right then and there. And I was praying and I said, Dear Lord, if it be your will, I don't want this to be the end of my life. In a millisecond, I thought about how I'd lived a great life for 29 years. I've experienced more than most people ever will in a lifetime. But selfishly, I still had something I want to live for. And if it be your will, Lord, I don't want this to be the end. Much of my relief when I pulled that ejection handle... Canopy on the F-16 departs, and I'm ejected out at 27,000 feet parallel with the horizon. I remember now seeing piece of the aircraft now flying around me. And it's here that if I would let the eject system work on automatic mode, the seat will have me in it free-falling down to an altitude of 15,000 feet above sea level, and then the parachute should automatically open up. Well, that's if everything's working right. You have to understand, I just came out of an airplane that just burned up and blew up on me. And I've already been burnt, and I'm thinking maybe my parachute's burnt, and it's never going to open. And now I'm looking down at the ground five miles below me, thinking I just might fall to my death. And that deeply disturbed me. <laughs> I want to know if that parachute was going to open at all. Well, there's a manual override handle on our ACES-2 ejection seat, and I pull that handle, much to my relief, that parachute opens up, my descent rate slows down. Now, this is the first time I have the ability to actually think about what's you know, happening to me. Prior to that, I'm actually just reacting to stay alive. Well, this is where the training I received in the Air Force became very valuable to me. From the time I went through pilot training, survival schools, continuing life support training, I knew all the emergency training steps were there to save my life. So I instinctively went through my emergency checklist of checking canopy, visor, mask, C-kit, LPU, four-line release. As I'm going down my checklist now, I'm looking out over the countryside of Bosnia. And I have to say, it's a very beautiful country. And I can see a large city off to my west and a highway that runs off to the east. Now, to the north of the highway, there's farmland. To the south, there are hills and mountainous terrain and scattering of forest areas. Everywhere I look, though, there are farmhouses and villages. It's a very populated area. But as I'm watching this, I could not believe that this was happening to me. 
Why? Because bad things are never supposed to happen to us in life, are they? No. They're only supposed to happen to Ron, right? <laughs> but what brought me to the reality of this, this was really happening was that something caught my eye. And to the south of my position, I could see a brush fire. And right next to it, I could see smoke rising from the ground. And as I stare at that, I realize that that's where parts of my aircraft had impacted the ground. That's where that comfortable bubble, that F-16 I was in just moments ago, was now lying in ruins there in Bosnia. See, I had taken that airplane for granted. I assumed that it would just fly me back to Italy that afternoon to where I could go out to a nice Italian street cafe, have a nice bowl of pasta, and watch pretty Italian ladies walk by the street. Well, that's when I looked out of Bosnia and I realized that's not going to happen down there. I said, Scott, this is real, and you better get your act together because the next mistake you can make could be the very last mistake of your entire life. And unfortunately, when you're shot down over hostile territory, you land right on top of the people that shoot you down. And there was no guessing who I was. I look like the Goodyear blimp over Bosnia. I'm coming down a parachute that's white, brown, green, and orange. It was like a neon sign descending down on the ground. And I could see the enemy in their vehicles right below me along the highway, slowly drifting down that highway, ready to grab me as soon as I land. I land 50 yards south of the highway. If I were landed to the north in open fields, there was nowhere to hide. I land in a small clearing, about two times the size of the stage up here among some trees. If I had gotten entangled in the trees, there's no way I would have escaped in time. When I do my parachute landing fall, when I hit the ground, I finally disconnect out of my harness. I run over. I grab my survival rucksack. I stick my survival pack underneath my arm like a football, and I start to run. At that point, I'm thinking, Scott, you're 29 years of age. You're a young man. You've been working out in the gym for the last three months. You're in the best shape of your life, and you have more adrenaline running through your heart than you've ever had in your life. By the time the enemy could reach your parachute, you'll be 20 miles south up that hill. And if I could, I'd run back to Italy that afternoon. But that never happened. And I don't know how to explain to you, but it wasn't where I was out of shape or hyperventilating. But after running about 200 yards, I couldn't run any further. I didn't know who I'd run into around the next corner either. And I looked around for a place to hide. It was like this whole overwhelming situation came collapsing down on top of me, pressing down on me like a weight. So I stopped. I looked around for a place to hide. I didn't have any bushes to duck into. I didn't have any areas of tall grass to hide in. All I had were stands of trees. I dove into the center of a stand of trees to try to find undergrowth, but there wasn't anything there. It was like it was hollow in the center. It was like somebody opened up an umbrella and the branches came down like a canopy. And the only place I was able to find cover was underneath the low-lying branches, but I was also right next to the grass where people could walk right by me just a few feet away. Immediately, I broke out my survival radio to call it to Wilbur. And I put out three radio calls saying, Wilbur, this is Zulu, only to hear static and reply. Now I could hear the vehicles approaching my parachute area. And I started to hear voices, so I shut off my radio in fear of that static noise giving away my position. Moments later, an elderly man and a teenage boy walked within six feet of me. They're the only two individuals that I saw the entire time I was there that were not armed. After that, everyone else I saw was carrying a weapon. Well, that was 3.30 in the afternoon, and the sun didn't go down for six hours. That was the longest six hours I have ever experienced in my entire life. When time 
you know, has a completely different meaning when you're going through a situation like this. I want you to realize when I was in Bosnia, I never had to look at my watch because I was never late for a meeting there. But now I had tasks I'd accomplished every single hour and every 24-hour period just to try to survive and stay alive there. And actually, my activities changed. In Bosnia, my days became my nights, and my nights became my days. But the one time I looked at my watch, 7 o'clock that first evening, that's when I heard the first gunshot. And it was an area about half the size of a football field where I'm hiding. Throughout the next half an hour, in random intervals in different locations, I counted the enemy firing their weapons around me six times. The only conclusion I came to was that, number one, they just tried to kill me by blowing up my aircraft. Now I have to assume they see something or hear something. They think it's me and they're just shooting at it. Well, I have never had more fear for losing my life than at that moment. When they say you can go through an experience like this in life, your life can flash before your eyes. I want you to know it didn't come to me like I was watching a motion picture. I started to see still photos as if I was watching a slideshow. Pictures of my family members and my friends came to mind. And then images that I had forgotten about from back when I was a young boy came into clear vision. And actually, one of the first persons I really thought about was the first girl I ever fell in love with in high school. I remember how I was a senior in high school, and at that time I wanted to be a fighter pilot. So my dream would have to take me to college and off in the military, and I thought, this young relationship will never make it. So I was very shy, and I just decided I'm not even going to tell her about how much I care about her. Well, guess what? I achieved my dream to become that fighter pilot, and only to be lying in the woods of Bosnia, which I go back in time, marry that girl from high school, <laughs> move to a nice place like Lantana, Texas, just be a poster worker or something like that. But we can never change our past in life, and we can never go back in time. I learned from that. One, be careful what you wish for. You might get it. And two, if I have an opportunity to tell somebody that I care about them, I take the first chance I can get because I might not have a second time. But that time, I also did a lot of soul searching and a lot of reflecting. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to die right now, how do I live a good life? Yes, I've been very blessed. I have to say that. But did I have regrets? Most definitely. Did I have things that I absolutely saw as despicable and sinful? Yes, most definitely. I'm not without sin. But at that time in my prayer, I did turn, and I realized that I'd already been forgiven through the blood of Christ and his death as a substitutionary atonement for my sin. And as my Savior, he saves me and washes me clean of that. And I trust in him alone for that forgiveness, and him alone do I accept in his promise of eternal life. And that overwhelmingly gave me such great peace and joy, realizing that whether I lived or died or not, but that his grace alone was totally sufficient for all of my needs. And during this time, then, I spent six days there, hiding in three different locations, evading over the course of two different nights, armed individuals walking nearby me every single day except for the last day. I found a better hiding spot. First two days, I could actually look up and see the faces of the pilots inside their serving helicopter right above the tree line searching for me. And then I could hear it off in the distance expanding its search envelope. The uh, entire time I'm there, I'm wet, I'm cold, I'm hypothermic. I'm wearing about as much clothing as I have on right now with just having on a flight suit. I was dumb enough not to wear my jacket that day. Um, my heart's pounding like I'm running a marathon day and night, even though I'm lying down the majority of the time. I lost well over 25 pounds in those six days. I had no food with me, just a couple of packages of water. And I'm trying to desperately try to talk to somebody on the radio. And what I don't realize is that why is it taking me six days to reach somebody on the radio to get rescued? Well, I find out that once I'm shot down because of the unknown threat in the region, the majority of the combat air patrols now were being placed out over the Adriatic Ocean because they didn't want another airplane to be shot down over country. 
And it just so happens that my radios only have line of sight communicating device. And it took me two nights of evading up to the top of a hill where I could finally have no hills or obstructions in between me and the airplanes that were flying about 80 miles away from me, which happens to also be about the max range of my radio reception. But when I'm evading at night, use everything I could to my resources. I'd have up my map, and I would study it in the daytime. It wasn't extremely detailed. But the most useful thing to be able to help me see what was around my area were actually my ears. Because I could hear things around me, nearby and off of the distance. The gunfire and the battles that would be off to the distance or nearby in my area. Activities in farmhouses and villages. Vehicles moving along roads. I now painted a middle picture of where I was. And I picked a corridor that I felt was the most secure to evade through to the south to get to the top of a hill where my radio could work better. When I'm evading at night through this war zone, I can't just walk in a straight line in the darkness of night in the maze of trees. So I'd have out my compass and my GPS to help guide me, but they were glowing all the time. I was afraid that somebody might see them if I had them out too long. So the most useful thing that helped me guide you know, through this war zone while I was evading was actually something I learned as a boy at a summer camp. And that's when a counselor taught us how when you look up at the stars and you find the Big Dipper in the Northern Hemisphere, you can locate the North Star. And when I found the North Star, I placed it to my back, and I found a very bright star right along the southern horizon. And that bright star would help guide me at night. Well, now, here I bedded down in my last hiding spot. I didn't know at the time, but I was physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted. I needed something to inspire me. And I found it. I found that inspiration by thinking about individuals who'd gone through a lot worse than I ever did. They make my experience look like a six-day camping trip. Those who inspired me had been shot down like I had been, but to no fault of their own, they'd been caught. They had been prisoners of war. They had been in places like the Wallow prison system, in captivity for five or seven plus years, solitary confinement and torture just about every day of their endeavor. And these prisoners inspired me because I was thinking to myself that the worst day that I think that I'm selfishly having right now trying to survive here in this war zone is a lot better off than the best day of ever being a prisoner. Why? Because I was still free free to make my own decisions. But then I thought, if I do get caught, as they did, not to know if I'd ever make it home alive or not, because some of those prisoners never came home. They died in those camps. But those that found the strength to be able to come home, to return their family members, if they found that strength, somehow I would also. Because now I'm thinking about what's happening back home. What is my family thinking about? They have no idea if I'm alive. And I thought about my mother. She told me of a friend of hers who was a naval aviator who was shot down during the Vietnam conflict. And they didn't find his remains until many years after that war was over. And when they finally found his bones, they brought him back for a proper burial. And this came to my mind as I'm lying there in Bosnia. If I ended up in an unmarked grave here in this nation with my mother to never know I made it to the ground alive, that would tear my heart apart. And I was praying out there, as I've already told you, 24 hours a day. But then I put in a simple request. I said, please, Lord, I just want somebody to find me on this radio so that my mother can get the word I just didn't perish in the explosion in the sky, but actually made it to the ground alive. And the next night, I'm up on the side of a hill in an area in a little clearing, in the darkness of night. I'm going through my radio drill. Every night, I would get up on the radio, monitor my frequency, send out a beacon, call out for somebody to hear, to hear me. What I don't realize on this faithful night, something's different. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I have a friend now flying out over the Adriatic Ocean. But when his replacement comes out, he doesn't turn back to Italy to go home to his wife and his lovely house to get some sleep that evening. 
T.O. Hanford sees that he has another 30 minutes to stay out on station. And he asks for special permission to stay out longer to see if he can find me on a radio frequency I might be monitoring to save my life. I want you all to know that he did this not even knowing if I'm alive or not. Were to come back that I might already be dead. But Tio didn't want to give up on me. He put in that extra effort to try to find me to save my life. And I'll be in dead to him for as long as I live. And I'm going through my radio drill. I'm monitoring my frequencies. I'm calling out anyone, Basher 5-2, hoping somebody would hear me. When finally I hear three metallic clicks on the radio. Then I hear a faint and broken transmission. And when I could clearly hear Tio responding on the radio by saying, Basher 1-1 for Basher 5-2, I wanted to scream at that point. I cut my hand over the radio and I called back to him saying, Basher 5-2, Basher 5-2. He heard my radio call and now he asked me a question. He asked me, copy that, what was your squadron in Korea? And he wants to know this answer because he wants to know that this is the enemy just on the radio trying to trick him into a trap. So when I gave him the right answer by telling him, Juvats, Juvats, I'm alive, I'm alive. And he said, copy that, good to hear your voice. I will never forget that moment for as long as I live. At that point, I wanted to cry, I wanted to laugh, and I wanted to scream for joy. Because virtually I had been dead in the outside world for six days. And now someone knew I was alive. And if you ask Captain Hanford, what's it like to fly an F-16 with a tear coming out of your eye? Paints a different picture when we've seen these movies. See, this isn't Hollywood. We're real people. We have real emotions. But yet, in the profession of being in the military, we can't let our emotions control us because we're asked to risk our lives. And we think it's worth that price if it means defending our freedom. Now, the teamwork that went in to get me out of Bosnia was incredible. So it wasn't just the Marines to rescue me. It was an entire team effort. One of the most beautiful things about being in the military is we recognize that every member is vital to the success of the mission. And when one of us is in trouble, the rest are they are risking their lives to save that other person. That's a very special bond that we share. But decisions are going on. Admiral Smith is in charge of the entire operation. He hears that I'm alive and on the ground. He radios to the closest rescue forces that could reach my position, which were the United States Marine Corps, out in the Adriatic Ocean. And he asked their commander, can you pull off a daytime rescue? He realized that by the time a helicopter could reach my position, it's going to be daybreak. And that's very significant because we have night vision equipment and training to help us in rescuing pilots in a nighttime scenario. And uh, you have a much greater advantage using the cover of night. With daybreak coming open, you expose yourself to the enemy. And the colonel didn't even hesitate. He said, sir, you give us your support overhead. We're going in right now. We'll pull them out. But generals at a different location in Italy told me this might have to wait by saying on the radio, Basher 5-2, stand by. This might have to wait until manana. I don't know if you understand, but manana is Spanish for tomorrow. <laughs> well, I don't understand Spanish very well, but I assume that all the enemy forces out there understood Spanish a lot better than I did, and that anybody who's listening on our frequency knows now that they want to wait till tomorrow to get me. Well, I was very mad. So I got on the radio and I said, no, I want you to come in right now today and get me out of here. They said, calm down, don't be mad at us. Shut off your, uh, your radio and save your batteries for 30 minutes. And when you turn on the radio, we'll have an answer for you. So I look at my watch and at 4.15 in the morning, I'm supposed to turn on that radio. And I want to hear an answer that they're going to come in and rescue me right away. Well, I have a good enough mind to go ahead and shut off my radio and go hide for 24 hours and not even talk to them anymore. 
Just kidding. <laughs> when I turn on that radio, much to my relief, they tell me we're coming to get you right now. We're throwing all of our assets airborne and get ready for authentications and, authentications and signals. I went through a very official means of authenticating myself. I passed two different uh, codes that would be able to be converted into the location where I was at. I had uh, fast-moving F-18s come over and mark my position to make sure that those codes were converted into the right coordinates. have uh, all my signaling devices, my smoke grenades, my gyrogens, my compass, my mirror, my GPS. And as the helicopters are inbound now from the south of my position to come in and rescue me, I'm now talking to the pilots directly on the radio. And we're trained how you can give them headings off your compass to fly into your location. And as I'm talking to them, they're getting so loud now, I feel like they're right on top of me. Well, that's when I look up and see one of the most glorious sights I've ever seen in my entire life. And that was the United States Marine Corps helicopter cresting over the horizon, half around the world in hostile territory. It saved my life. I'm a very patriotic person. But never in my life have I been more proud to be an American than at that moment. And when those Cobras came in, they started circling around me. Security area now for the CH-53s that are bringing the Marines to rescue me. Honestly, I don't really know what they're doing. I just wanted them to throw down a rope. I'll come out the rope. Let's get out of here. So I'm thinking. But the Marines took a leadership role on site. They took charge. It was the right thing to do. They gave me permission to approach them. I got on board the helicopter. People were seen leaving houses. No shots were fired at that time. We vacated the landing zone area. And as we're flying out in the egressing, we went through an area of Ukrainian Serb territory where we were ambushed. We were shot out by man pads, sold on surface-air missiles, anti-aircraft artillery, and small arms fire. Three of the four helicopters took damage from ground fire. One of the bullets went through my helicopter, came through the roof from the tail end of the airplane, then deflected off the roof into the canteen on the side of the sergeant major right across from me. The bullet clanks around on the floor, rests at the foot of a Marine. The Marine reaches down, picks up the bullet, and looks at it. And he sticks it in his pocket. Well, that's the first time I took a really good look around the helicopter bay area. Guess what I saw? Camouflage faces of 19-year-old Marines. That was the average age of the Marine that saved my life. And we came home from this event many years ago. But at that point, we were a news event. Magazines, newspapers, and even television carried this as a news event, not only here in this country, but around the world. And they called us and hailed us as heroes. And I did a lot of thinking and asking myself when I was going through this, I said, why are they calling us heroes? And I came up with my own definition of what I really believe a hero is in life. In the light of the world we live in now, since September 11th of 2001, since the world has dramatically changed here in our world, in the United States, I hope you can appreciate my definition of what I believe a hero is. Because looking at my life growing up as a boy, I can never tell you that I had a hero that was a sports star a rock star, or a movie star. See, I only saw that as entertainment. I believe that heroes in life are people who do things to help other people. I want you to know, for those six days, the only thing I was thinking about was that it was my job, it was my duty to survive this and to make sure that my family, my country's honor was upheld. I was just trying to survive out there. Those Marines knowingly risked their lives under hostile fire to save my life. They're my personal heroes as is the entire team that was there to support that effort to make it a success. But does it take a 19-year-old Marine underneath a life-threatening condition to be somebody here in life? No, I don't believe so. I really believe that there are heroes on a day-to-day basis that never get recognized. Every single one of you here can be a hero in your life. 
when you do something in your personal life to help somebody, a family member, a friend, or more importantly, a stranger. And here as a church community, when you allow God's love and the light of Christ to shine here in your community, that to me makes you a hero. But who is the greatest hero that's ever lived of all? Well, to me, he's more than a hero. He's God himself. And the second person of the Trinity who became man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man in one person. He is our Savior. He came here to pay for my sin and the sins of all of us, of the entire world. And through his death and resurrection, he has atoned for all of those sins. And now he offers all of us the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. That's, to me, the greatest gift that any of us can receive. And in our lives, when we do things to reflect the love of God and to be heroes by helping others, where's the reward for us? Does it come from being recognized? Notoriety and fame, medals and decorations, ribbons on our chest like we get in the military? No, I don't believe so. I really believe that the real reward for helping others in life really only comes in one place. And that's in your heart, knowing you did the right thing. And really, that's the only reward we should ever look for. And as I broke free from that valley we were being shot at, we hit the Croatian coastline now. We were home free and we knew it. We were feet wet. What does that mean? Well, we could smell the salt air because we were flying as low as we could get inside of the cabin area. We're over the ocean now. We know that no threats are going to be shooting at us. At that point, you would have thought we would have celebrated because we were out of there. We knew it. We were home free. You thought, would have thought maybe we would have stood up and given some high fives all around and some pats on the back and some cheers inside that helicopter bay area as we flew out of there. But I want you to know, if you'd have been there with us, you'd have seen none of that. At that moment, if you looked around, the only thing you could have seen were some content smiles on those camouflaged faces, knowing that 61 had gone in and 62 came home and no one got hurt. That was the best feeling. And as we... And as we land on board the USS Kearsarge out in the Adriatic Ocean now, I want you to know I was only thinking of one thing in my life. Mind you, I've never been on a helicopter before. So as I step out of this helicopter, I'm thinking, this would be a good idea to duck. Because I thought it would look really stupid if I got my head chopped off and walking in the rotor blades. I don't want to do anything dumb to hurt myself right at that moment. Well, the doctors took me down to the bottom of the ship where the hospital is, and they put a heat blanket on me, raised my body temperature back up because I was hypothermic. Um, they injected me with shots because I don't know why they thought I caught something out there. But they injected me with lots of shots, and then they injected me with IVs to rehydrate my body. And uh, then they put me in a bunk bed to get some sleep because I really hadn't slept for six days. What I forgot to tell you is I never slept at night. I took maybe only a 20-minute nap during the daylight hour, but I was so afraid because people walk around me, I never really slept. So now I'm in this bunk bed. You would think I would have slept for six days, but I didn't. I didn't sleep for another six days. I was just so happy to be alive. <laughs> well, a doctor came to visit me. And he pulled a chair right up to my bed. And he asked, can I ask you personal questions? I want you to know this is not an official visit as a doctor or an officer. I said, ask me anything you want. He said to me, he said, well, what are you thinking about for six days that kept you alive? And I smiled and I said, well, that's pretty easy. See, to me, my life is a gift God gave me. And that was a gift I was not ready to give up on. Every single day I wake up with problems. And I have worries. And I have concerns. In fact, I have to tell you selfishly, I think I have more problems than anyone else in the entire world. 
But every single day, just as I did this morning, whether I feel like it or not, I praise God and I thank Him for this day and what a beautiful day it is. Why? Because this is a day I should never even have had. And what a glorious day it is to worship Him. And then the doctor, he looked at me and says, well, I can see you were praying out there. Well, I have to ask you, when you were praying, did you make deals with God to come home? And I said, well, as far as I know, I have nothing to bargain with. (laughs) And I have to tell you, I just want to go home and try to simplify my life. And he asked, what does that mean? And I said, well, I've been trying to simplify my life even before this happened to me. And uh, what it really means to me is looking at the big picture of what's really important in life and realizing all these day-to-day concerns and worries and problems that we think we face in this worldliness of life, about 90-plus percent of them don't add up to much. If you really look at what's truly important in this life, what is truly important? Your relationship with God ultimately is the most important thing you can have and find in this life. And I thought about it. You know what? I just need to shove all those things that I worry about off to the side let Him handle them and try to simplify my life to where I can spend more time, where I can be happy and successful. Because I want to be happy. And I want to be successful. But the world will scream at me and tell me I'll only be happy if I have a powerful job, if I have a million-dollar bank account, if I have a fast-red car. Are those, those things necessarily inherently evil? No, don't misunderstand me. Having a job in life and a profession that is self-satisfying and the purpose that God has intended for your life and it's a job and a profession that's helpful and a benefit to others, that's a blessing that most people never find. Having material wealth to be able to find some freedom and security to be able to do and perform the purpose that God has for your life, again, it's a blessing. But I thought there has to be a balance. I can't live only for the material things. I use those things so that I can live because I eventually realize that one day I'm going to die. I could die tonight, but eventually I'm going to die. And when I was lying there in Bosnia, I realized that someday I'm going to die. And if I had one day left to live, I realized I would not run home to hug my car. No, I'd run home and hug my mom. That's when it really dawned on me that my true happiness didn't come through the material things in life. It came through my relationships with the people that I love. And now it's just the simple times in life of spending a meal with my family members and my friends and discussing what's happening in my life that I find the greatest joy. So when I finally do die, I want to welcome you all to my funeral. That's an open invitation. You're all welcome to come. I'm going to have a tombstone. My date of birth, a dash in the granite, which sadly might be the longest lasting reminder of my life, and my date of death. But I want you to know that I found success where I found happiness. First and foremost, through my relationship I have with God. And my success will not have anything to do with what I have done, because I have nothing to offer. It will have everything to do with what Christ has done for me. And then I'll look at my life, though, and say, was I successful in following Christ? And did I reach out to love others in success as being a son, a brother, a friend? And I hope in the future to be successful as a husband and a father. And Carpe Diem sees the day, has true meaning from every day. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to leave you right now and uh, go off to Vegas and throw all my money away at the gambling tables and light my hair on fire and go crazy like there's no tomorrow. No, to me, Carpe Diem means seize the day, seize the moment. Because I have to make a confession that I never have really done that in my life prior to that point. See, I always thought that happiness would come if I attained a goal in life. Whether it be getting my driver's license, graduating school, becoming a fighter pilot, getting the next promotion. 
I lived the majority of my life never being happy with where I was in life or with what I had. Well, I learned a quick lesson there in Bosnia that I can never place my happiness in the future for a destination of tomorrow. Why? Because there's no guarantee that tomorrow will ever come. I need to learn to be happy right now, this very moment of the journey of my life, with where God has me, or I'll never find happiness. So that's how I simplify things. Pretty simple. And uh, the doctor thanked me, and he said, okay, I have no more questions. And he got up, and he's walking away. But before he's gone, he turns around, and he looks at me, and he says, by the way, welcome home. He was the first person to welcome me back. I sat back in that bed with the biggest grin I've ever had on my, my entire face. My entire life, I don't know if my face has ever cracked that much. Because you have to understand the joy that hit me when he said those words. I had been living overseas in Air Force assignments for four years, back-to-back from Korea, Germany, and Italy. And in that time, I didn't even take vacation time to come back to see my family. I wanted to travel the world and get the education of seeing Asia, Western Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Northern Africa. And in that time, I had great, incredible opportunities to see very prosperous nations, but I also saw a lot of impoverished nations. But on every single nation that I visited, I could not find a nation on this planet that would afford its citizens more rights, privileges, conveniences, freedoms, and liberties as we have here as Americans. We are truly blessed to be citizens of this country. So I was thrilled the thought of coming back to my family and coming back to the United States of America. And as I fly across the Atlantic Ocean now, the joy in my heart turns to utter black fear. Why? Well, for four years of living overseas on the news, I hear about the riots in the streets of Los Angeles. I hear about the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. I hear about a Branch Davidian standoff in Waco, Texas that turned into chaos. And then I heard just a few weeks before I'm shot down over Bosnia that the Oklahoma City bombing had happened. I want to remind us all that that was a terrorist attack that was perpetrated by a fellow American citizen. And that person once wore our nation's uniform. I was disgusted with that thought. I could not believe that something like that could ever happen here in this country. Myself and my fellow service members that are stationed overseas were wondering what is happening back in the United States of America. Are the citizens that live here failing to appreciate their freedom? Are they failing to understand and realize that their freedom has never come for free? No, our freedom has been paid for by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of those who have forged our nation and are out there this very moment protecting us to this very day. And we should never fail to appreciate those sacrifices. So I have no idea what I'm coming back to. But as I step off that airplane in Washington, D.C., I saw something I will never forget for as long as I live. Because not only did I have my family there and my friends ready to greet me back home, but I also had a crowd of complete strangers waving American flags and holding up a sign saying, Welcome home, Basher 5-2. We've been praying for you. You know what I saw from that? Not with my eyes with my heart. I saw that there are people like yourselves who live here in this country who care about others. Christians like yourselves who understand the two greatest commandments that Christ ever gave us. That is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. For me to be able to see that when I stepped off that airplane, as I do here today with all of you here at church, that makes me proud. Proud to be somebody who has served overseas, wearing our nation's uniform for four years. But more importantly, it's because of individuals like yourselves that even made it possible for me to be able to survive for those six days in that war zone to be able to return here to my home 
to be able to say one thing, and that's that I am proud to be an American, and I have you to thank for that. May God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you for having me.